we're started. Acoustic memory. <laughs> uh, how do you like it when we start in the middle of a sentence? It's funny because um, you walked in with this mug, and I love that mug, and, and um, you said you wanted to talk about the issues around it. Can you hold it up so the camera can see because it's actually out of frame right now? What do you think? Oh, I guess we should describe it too for our uh, audio-only listeners. Yeah, it says, Britney survived 2007. You can handle today. The Britney's almost all the way worn off. Yeah, so I do worry that like that saliva, as I kind of <clears throat> sip from the top of this cup every morning, that in, in, a, in the like Greek fate way, you know, when your string is cut, that means your life is over. I do wonder and worry that when I completely remove Britney from there, that might be, it might be the like causal, the beginning of the causal end for for the poor woman. <laughs> So what, so what what issues does it bring up for you? Well, so uh, um, so it's a novelty mug. Suicide isn't funny, but uh, I think I think her life has been really fascinating in the in since since then since two thousand seven. So do you know about this that she's in guardianship? Yes, I've heard over overseen by like her um, husband and her lawyer, whose last name is Wallet, and it's of course two men. And you couldn't imagine a world in which the inverse was true where a man in 2007 who tried to commit suicide and who made on average $34 million a year of income during his residency as a pop star was being controlled by his mother and female lawyer and the courts would not grant him right over, over his children or control over his empire income, right? You just simply can't imagine it. The thought experiment, if you reverse the genders, just doesn't work. Yeah. And like, I, I kind of think it's, I don't know. Um, it's it's like it's this interesting legacy of it used to be the case that so the 1942 film cat people uh it used to be the case that the central plot point to that is that a woman could be by by kind of i'm going to say fiat because it's just as random for the men around a woman to decide this as you know a, a, a rule from above but um a doctor and like a husband could send away a woman uh, like back in the 40s and 50s in America, it was like a mental health thing. Yeah. And like just this idea that... And there were this, ailments that belonged only to women, right? Yeah. Like hysteria. Or... Absolutely. There was schizophrenogenic mothering, which is the idea that schizophrenia was induced by the by bad mothering. Um, oh. and in, in, in the mother or in the child? In the child. Okay. In the child. Um, and I just think it's like appalling that it's still, it's still around um, in it, in a different form, in just kind of the implicit the 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 like judge and courts implicit allow like like she like there are a lot of people so i, I used to live in the tenderloin district of, of san francisco and there are a lot of people who had at some point in their lives committed suicide or like tried to commit suicide attempted to or had a mental break none of those people were under like ward and commission still like a decade later yeah. of the court, they did not have their children, the, the the concept of their children, the right to see their children used against them in order to make them sign under duress, this kind of guardianship arrangement. Like just because they were poor and didn't have so much income on the line, like her, her father and lawyer draw their income out of her earnings. Wow. And and it just kind of. And uh, is there any end in sight? I don't know any of the details about this. There's there's been like petitions. She finally spoke up. I think recently this year, it's 2020. Um, she finally spoke up this year publicly on Instagram or something about like th th there's a free Britney movement. But this yeah. idea that like I mean, America used her for her virginity when she became a pop star, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Like they effectively used her seductiveness and her, her feminine like blossoming to make her into a pop star and then exploited her motherhood, right? Like it, then, then she had two kids. And so like she's embodying just like, I don't know, her life seems to be embodying like female exploitation or like the exploitation of the female body for its virginity and for its maternity and fertility, like all in one lifespan. Wow. I, I, I had, I'd only peripheral knowledge about this and I hadn't thought about it in this way. And yeah, it's, 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 it's devastating and it's, I'm glad that you're bringing attention to it. I don't know. I can't add anything to it cause I just don't know enough, but I, I, I seem to, uh, what you say resonates. Well, so I went, I saw her with a friend, uh, with my, one of my friends in, in Vegas, uh, during her residency. And it was so interesting to me because, um, she doesn't write her, the, the particular song that I remember. She didn't write the lyrics. It was written by four men. She didn't do the choreography. It was choreographed by a man. And she lip syncs. And so here's this woman. She, um, you know, what is it like to be a bat? What is it like to be Britney? I don't know. It's equally as distant from my uh, understanding of what it's like to live in this world. Um, but it was just so, like, you know, we've, we've talked before about, like, whether or not there's imitation all the way down or mimicry all the way down. Like, what are we if not mimicking things that come before us or things that we think we should be or roles we should play. And she was dancing to moves choreographed by a man, singing, lip singing to songs written by a man, giving her income to, you know, like, like where is she in this process? Yeah. And I thought it was, I, I went down the uh, street to there's some like dueling piano bar and their only rule was no Britney requests. You like pay money and then they will play covers of the songs. And like, I got them to, I got, I paid enough money to get them to finally sing Britney. And the reason being, I really wanted to see like someone imitating the imitator. I wanted to like, I wanted to add levels yeah. of imitation to this a process. Simulacrum of a simulacrum. Um, how did you become interested in this? You who already doesn't care that much about music. I'm curious that you, uh, that you followed this and uh, obviously from way back. Well, it's about mental health, right? Like, so I'm a neuroscientist. I care about mental health and I care about the like the ways in which we treat and stigmatize illness yeah, of course of so course. this cup is about stig stigma like stigmatization of illness right interesting interesting and also I uh, uh let's see I don't think I've ever said this publicly um when my grandfather died uh we read his will right and there was fifty dollars given to like the state of New Hampshire for some reason in the will. Uh -huh. And I was like, what's that about? Uh, and my mom was like, all right, sit down. It's like one of those things, you know, where it's like, all right, when a doctor's like, sit down. Yeah. Um, and it turns out I, my mother's sister, my mother's older sister, when uh, she, so my mother was like 10, the older sister was maybe 12 or 13, uh, got sent away. So with uh, basically was misbehaving as a child um, and of course this is just my telephone version of the story was misbehaving as a child and got sent away to a mental hospital just to kind of like a teenage girl rebelling kind of thing. But it was in the late fifties, early sixties when schizophrenogenic mothering was a thing. And when like mental health care, honestly, mental health care in this country has been, um, like uh, it's had a very, very strange history and it has not gone well. It's generally been, uh, the like the 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 
we, we've made a choice as a society now to like deinstitutionalize. We don't have as many, we still have mental hospitals, but in general, it used to be the case that we, we have deinstitutionalized, which means our mental health like facilities and care have spread to basically prisons and the streets. Now we used to, it used to be the case that you would trade a little bit of autonomy and freedom for the, the kind of societal institutions where basically people would have less rights to their own freedom, their own personal freedoms. You could be taken away, um, but there'd be a centralized kind of repository for things to happen. But there was so much backlash against lobotomies, against ECT, against all of the anti-psychotics and antidepressants, which just didn't work. And the like slow erosion of personal freedoms that I think our country rebelled against and we deinstitutionalized and we said we'd, we prefer freedom over this kind of obvious um, centralized way to help people in mental health crises. And but back in the day, institutionalization was full swing. And so if you can imagine, what is it like to be Bat? What is it like to be Brittany? What is it like to be my aunt? Um, when she was 14. Lou Reed, you know about Lou Reed? Got like, um, uh, not lobotomized, what is it? Uh, electroshock treatment ECT, for his potential, yeah. uh, for, for being gay. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Uh, Alan Turing got like hormone therapy and treatment for being gay like like it was a pathology right it was a disease yeah. and so the, it's very interesting what we what we call a disease and what we um like whether or not we think there's a person personality problem at the root cause or whether or not it's a physical problem at the root cause tim leary and and richard alpert later ramdas would try and treat ramdas's uh homosexuality with lsd and they thought maybe that might be one of the potential things that it could help cure yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Go on with I your mean, aunt. I don't want to interrupt the story. Well, like the the guy, Moniz, Albert Moniz, maybe, um, guy who kind of popularized the lobotomy, got a Nobel Peace Prize, 1949. Oh. Nobel Peace Prize. Well, so, anyway, I, go on, go on. It's uh, the threat too much. She got, she got sent away. And at the time, you just like loaded people up with lithium, right? Mm -hmm. Or like you just, they didn't know what to do. So they just injected them with a sedative or lithium or something. She spent her entire life in that hospital. She never came out from age 14 to like, I think she died in 2010. Oh my God. Entire life. And I, th I like, I, so part of what pisses me off about this uh, cup and Brittany's whole thing yeah. is just simply this woman, my aunt, who I never met, never got to know, my mother's sister, just gone, just disappeared from society. And so the reason, um, the reason that in, a, in my grandfather's will, there was that $50 given to the state of Vermont or New Hampshire was because she's a ward of the state. She lost her family rights. She lost her surname and she became a ward of the state. So they had to go, I think they had to donate a certain amount to her to get it to her, but they didn't want to donate too much because it mostly goes to the state and not to her. Wow. And so it's just this like, I don't know. I just, every time I look at this cup, I kind of think of all these issues at once. And so it's a, it's a welcome to the day. Well, good morning. Good morning, So, so it's funny because I, I um, this is actually kind of leads into what I wanted to talk about. I have a kind of, I, I feel like I'm the luckiest person I know. And one of the reasons I feel I'm so lucky is that I, I think of myself as lucky. I have this kind of like deep-seated instinctual optimism. And yet sometimes, for some reason, I find pessimistic and cynical worldviews also very compelling, maybe because they're deeply comforting on some level, because if you expect, you know, I had a t-shirt once that said, I feel so much better now that I lost all hope. And I, my dad loved this t-shirt because he said it's so Zen. And um, anyway, this morning I spent a couple of hours listening to uh, Schopenhauer book on tape. 
I woke up at like five this morning and um, often I'll fall back asleep to something like this, but I actually found it so interesting and, and compelling. And, and, you know, he had this deeply pessimistic worldview and it's hard to argue against a pessimist worldview, right? I mean, there's a, there's a, uh, you know, he, his, his basic thing is that, you know, if you just look around at the, the, it, the only way life makes sense is if it's, purpose is to inflict pain and misery because that's the one thing we see everywhere and and then and the happiness that we feel is no way compensates for it and he said if you want to look at see that in action just look at an animal eating another one and uh is is the joy that the, the animal eating feels like more than the pain that the animal getting eaten feels and uh and then he said you know our whole life is just basically the pursuit of, you know, filling emptinesses, whether that's hunger or sex. And then, and then if we do satisfy those needs, then we have to cover up the fact that we've satisfied it. Otherwise we'll be bored. And boredom basically points at the essential emptiness of existence. And, um, and you know, like, so there's these artists like, like Lou Reed or, that have had these horrible experiences and then just kind of have these very dark worldviews. And there's something interesting about it because, like I said, maybe it's true, but yet it's perversely comforting to think this way. And if you listen to this Schopenhauer book, which I recommend doing on a book on tape, uh, it's, it's weird. It's weird. It's, it, maybe I'm so pathologically optimistic that I find even pessimism somehow uplifting. I don't know. I just wanted to talk about it a bit. And then uh, going back to um, to uh, Leonard Cohen that we keep going back to, I, I was thinking about his last big song that he made. I think came out maybe three weeks before yeah. he died. He recorded it in the hospital, I think, right? Yeah. Didn't, didn't his they bring son helped him. studio into the bed? Yeah. yeah. I remember that. And do you know the song, You Want It Darker? Uh, is it from that? Yeah, so it's his last, it's basically his last I remember it being, hit. No, I remember the whole album, darkness and bleakness and death. So I, I, I got obsessed with this song and I kind of want to spend a few minutes talking about it mm -hmm. because it kind of ties into all of this that we're talking about, but it also goes into a broader kind of philosophical uh, worldview. If you don't know the song, please listen to it. But if you do, here, I pulled up the lyrics so that we can just read them and analyze them a little bit. So, uh, because we spent a lot of time thinking about in, uh, with, in, with Bert Dreyfus about... Uh, uh, with Kierkegaard wrote about uh, the story of Abraham, you know, having to kill Isaac and um, that as a kind of ultimate test of one's faith, right? This willingness to kill his son, right? And then Bob Dylan took it up in Highway 66 Revisited, right? Uh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. Um, and then now Leonard Cohen takes it up again in this final hit of his and the, the the song is you want it darker and the lyrics are i'm just going to read them out loud because they're very beautiful and obviously leonard cohen was a poet before he was a songwriter and i think most of his songs stand as uh as poems too so he says if you are the dealer i'm out of the game if you are the healer i'm i'm broken and lame if thine is the glory mine must be the shame you want it darker we kill the flame Magnified, sanctified, be thy holy name, vilified, crucified in the human frame, a million candles burning for the help that never came. You want it darker. Hineni, hineni. Now that's what Abraham said when he got up to the mountain. And it means I'm ready. 
So it says, the lyric says, Hineni, Hineni, I'm ready, my Lord. There's a lover in the story, but the story's still the same. There's a lullaby for suffering and a paradox to blame, but it's written in the scriptures and it's not some idle claim. You want it darker, we kill the flame. They're lining up the prisoners and the guards are taking aim. I struggled with some demons. They were middle class and tame. Mm -hmm. um, hold on, I lost my place here. I just, yeah, yeah, I struggled with some demons. They were middle class and tame. I didn't know I had permission to murder and to maim. You want it darker. Hineni, hineni, I'm ready, my Lord. Magnified, sanctified, be thy holy name. Vilified, crucified in the human frame. A million candles burning for the love that never came. You want it darker. We kill the flame. If you're the dealer, let me out of the game. If you're the healer, I'm broken and lame. If thine is the glory, mine must be the shame. You want it darker. Hineni, 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 I'm ready, my Lord. So a lot of people listen to this song and said, oh, this Leonard Cohen is making this kind of religious statement and he's ready for death, which is you know going to happen a few imminently. But I think this is one of the most darkly nihilistic and pessimistic songs that I've ever heard. And of course, this is my uh, interpretation, but I think it, it, it holds up. So basically, if you remember in the, in the Brothers Karamazov, there's this character, I don't remember it clearly, but he says he wants to give back the ticket. And Schopenhauer talks about this too, that we talk about suicide being a morally you know, corrupt act, whereas that should be the one right that everyone has, has inalienably is to be able to give back this life that we didn't ask for, right? We're kind of thrown into this. And um, so there's this whole argument, there's a whole chapter in Brothers Karamazov about him wanting to, arguing rationally that he should have the right to give back the ticket, meaning the ticket to admission to life, right? And um, so I think Leonard Cohen's talking to God here, and he says, if you are the dealer, I'm out of the game. I, I, he doesn't want to play this game that is being handed, right? If you are the healer, if God is the healer, I'm broken and lame, meaning you're no good healer, right? If thine is the glory, God's glory, then mine's the shame. And if you want it darker, so now that he's saying to you, if God is asking for something dark, let's say God is asking Abraham to go kill the son, then we can bring it. If you want it darker, we'll kill the flame. We humans, right? So um, then... This line is devastating, I think. Like, so you have churches with candles burning and you have a million candles burning for the help that never came. You want it darker. And then, hineni, hineni, I'm ready, my Lord. And then you have this whole kind of, uh, uh, there's a lover in the story, but the story's still the same. There's a lullaby for suffering and the paradox to blame. So they're saying it's a paradox about having to, Abraham to kill, having to kill his son. But he says it's written in the scriptures. It's not some idle claim. So this is a real story that is being told of God asking for this horrific thing. Um, and he says they're, they're lining up the prisoners and the guards are taking aim. So just this kind of horrible image of humans killing each other. I struggled with some demons. They were middle class and tame. Um, so like the, the things that we're a lot of us are going through don't even scratch the surface of the potential horror. Right. Um, I didn't know I had permission to murder and to maim. So like we could go much deeper than our stupid middle-class suffering and, 
and if the if if God asks for this sort of actual murder and maiming, you want it darker. I had I had we'll understood the there'd be hierarchy in hell, but I never thought about the, the reason I kind of laughed at that line is I never thought about class structure in hell. <laughs> but of course, there's class structure in hell. Amazing, yeah. And then um, it repeats the million candles burning for the love that never came. Um, and if thine is the glory, mine must be the shame. You want it darker. He nanny, he nanny. So I, 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 I remember Oliver Stone came once to dinner and I went right when this song came over and I'm like, Oliver, you got to hear this song. It's incredible. And we went into my the GMC motorhome where I had a really nice sound system set up and he sat there and he sparked up a joint and I played the song and he said, he listened intently with his cloud of smoke and he's like, it again now, for those of you who don't remember it you know leonard cohen did some great songs for uh natural born killers right mm -hmm. the future it's murder and all of this um so i played the song and there was a long silence afterwards and then oliver said play it again and i played it again and then he asked me to play it a third time and then at the end he's like i've got to call leonard and like two days later leonard cohen died and um Anyway, I just this this song is just I find it super powerful connection of like some of the things we've been talking about from suicide, Schopenhauer, pessimism, um, poetry, and 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 in a way it's it's and it's also a beautiful song. So if you haven't heard it, listen to it because it's there is this paradoxical comfort that we get from sad love songs from dark expressions of what it is to be human and i don't know if that's just saying like we misery likes company or uh anyway and your interpretation of it was really beautiful too that was a nice additional layer to it i really appreciated that i know you like that so that's the reason i indulged in it <laughs> indulged in critical theory <laughs> <laughs> indulged in listening. Yeah. If, you, if you could sweep in uh, Do uh, uh dostoevsky and schopenhauer into just a, a leonard cohen song sung on his deathbed that's perfect uh, yeah, no, that's that's bleak and dark and and, really good. and beautiful, right? And beautiful, There's a beauty absolutely. to darkness, and I'm, I'm I'm I'd love to just like dwell on that a bit. Like, why is darkness beautiful? Why why don't we just run away from it? Why, when we see the fire burning over the mountain, do we think it's gorgeous and like? And the most beautiful sunsets and all of all of planet Earth are above like uh, urine urine dumps, are they? right? Because the the uh, kind of aerosolized urea. Is this interesting crystal pattern which reflects reflects the light really interestingly? So like pollution. beautiful sunsets. So yeah, they're caused by pollution and dumps and fires. <laughs> yeah, I think we're attracted. We're attracted to darkness as much as we are to light in a way. And is that just the essential human nature that we do have this darkness and we can bring it if God asks for it or whatever it is asks for it? Well, what is the opposite of boredom, right? To, to go back to the Schopenhauer's, the boredom is the worst thing. I mean, I, I think it's funny where that, um, you know, that film Life of Pi, some guy on a boat with some imaginary tiger and baboon yep. and things. Um, sorry, spoiler. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, what I always thought was really funny is like there's some sort of survival manual on the boat. And I think the guy's reading it in either the book or the movie. And... It's like, and if you actually look at an emergency survival manual, there'll be entire chapters dedicated to how to overcome human boredom. Don't get distracted. Don't get lost. Don't daydream. All these things that are like absurd. If you think about like, imagine the tiger's survival manual. The tiger's survival manual just does not have a chapter on, on how to overcome your psychological distress of boredom. I mean, yes, of course, animals can get bored and stressed and sad, but like to survive, 
they don't need help overcoming their psychology. And also, according to Schopenhauer, like they don't they have the blessing of they're all going to die, but they don't know it. Right. So even every day that we think, you know, we're not dying, human beings are at, on some level aware that they're going to die. And that just doesn't go away. And that just adds to the ultimate misery of existence, according to or you could say it adds to the ultimate possibility of meaning. So. I don't know. I'm on the fence. I'm on, on the on the optimistic side of the fence, as I mentioned most of the time. But I still think there's you got to take these these things seriously. Boredom is by like by no means my least favorite emotion. Like, like I do not mind being bored at all. I, think, I find it very unusual. I'm very rarely bored. And, right. and when I am, I do find it interesting. So therefore, not boring. <laughs> <laughs> so I find it quite impossible to be bored, actually. Yeah. I felt it like a couple of times. Like I remember being bored once in like 1998 for a few years. <laughs> so what, what, I'm actually what, thinking of a specific moment. What is your solution? Uh, <laughs> Wait, can you describe that moment? Just let somebody in general, be in general terms. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, I, I do remember once when I was extraordinarily <laughs> bored on a date, but that's yeah. it. Yeah, I think when you're stuck with somebody, and I could, there are some people who are just deeply, deeply boring. Yeah, and I couldn't even like resurrect it with uh, getting into like a story I liked telling, because then at least you're entertaining yourself. Uh, or practicing your, your storytelling. Um, no, but it's so dependent on the good listener. We've talked about this before, yeah, but like, just like music, listener. you need a skilled listener. If you're just telling the story to yourself, it just doesn't work. To be um, uh, the sad and satisfied, sat have the same root word, the same like original root word. So like, I've always loved that. And in, in, in like, it sad, the word sad comes from S-A-T, sat, which is the same root as satisfied. And? And I, well, I just kind of love that idea that. Um, What's the root mean, though? What language? I don't know. Oh. That's the end of my knowledge. <laughs> I just I had this book of etymology, and I was uh, note I was I was reading aloud to someone, and um, I was notating every word I didn't know the etymology to live, like as a podcast. I would just read a book, like an audio book, and every single word that I didn't or found interesting, its etymology. I went off on a tangent, and one of them was sad. That's all I remember. But I, I find it kind of like poetic and beautiful this idea that to come to rest right to be satisfied to come to rest that is the root word of sad yeah well right? that, that's very schopenhauerian yeah if that's the word like well because because that's getting at this idea of being bored to come to rest i found uh so uh right before this is probably under like friend da but right right before grad school uh started at stanford what's a friend da well, there's NDA, right? Right. Uh, which is like the business arrangement where you're not allowed to disclose certain uh -huh. things. But then there's the much, much higher in terms of the like cosmic um, bond bet between people. I consider to be the contract of the friend NDA. Yeah. That's like shorthand that for friend NDA, yeah. um, which is just like, you know, you would never disclose uh, certain things. But yeah. um, And you're about to disclose one. Well, I'm going to speak in generalities. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> before before grad school at Stanford, they, they take, there's a, like this boat ride um, at some lake, uh, like a rented a houseboat for the weekend. And a bunch of people, all the neuroscience people that were either incoming or current or newly graduated uh, PhD students. And it's, it, I, th I found it very interesting because it was like three days. So I got to do a lot of watching. And there are two states the boat could be in. It could be going one mile an hour in a circle or it could be perfectly still and kind of anchored. 
And when it was going one mile an hour in a circle, of course, it's only like perceived apparent motion. You're moving, but you have to really do like a time lapse, like a you know plant growing overnight kind of time lapse to even notice the difference of your, of your movement. But still, you, there's something in your body that knows you're moving. And I found it so interesting. There seemed to be two phases of behavior. There was, we were moving and we were still. And when we were moving, people were content to be still. And when we were still and anchored and the boat was perfectly zero miles an hour, people got kind of frenetic and they had to do something. That's when all the cleaning happened. That's when like the, the you know, people, people had to get up and pace and clean and do something. And it, to me, this, this kind of speaks to this idea of like what it means to be satisfied. So to, to me, to be dissatisfied was when the boat was stopped, right? Or, or maybe it's when it was moving, but I think, I think of it on, a, on an etymological level, almost like when you've stopped moving forward, you're satisfied, mm-hmm. but you're also sad and you're also maybe bored. And when they do that, there has to be like, there's this upwelling of energy that drives you to like, try to do something to fix the satiation that you feel. And that, but, but so just moving one mile an hour in a small dumb circle, literally to get to nowhere was enough. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think so about this sometimes with like cities, like I, I love living in the centers of urban environments and in part because I feel like even though I'm off in my hermetically sealed room, like writing uh, or doing whatever I'm doing, I feel like the city is moving at one mile an hour. Like there's still a momentum and an inertia to the city as a whole. And so I feel like, okay, I feel, I feel I'm granted the right to do nothing because people are moving forward. And one of the most difficult things about this year for me, like 2020 coronavirus pandemic year has been, I feel like the world is not moving anymore. We're not going one mile an hour. We're stuck. And I get no satisfaction from that. And I feel restless. You can't get no satisfaction. Um, so, um, have you, (laughs) I don't think it's like set up even to be playing. I haven't been doing, um, yeah, we've had so many piano. requests for you to come But I've back actually to been playing a lot more lately and um, I'm excited to bring it back. So look forward to it in future episodes. I'm going to be finding ways to uh, incorporate the piano. But what if there more. was a listener that and said... I really want a, a, a jingle at the beginning of our... Yeah, we need a our, jingle. But I but, want to play it live and a little different each day. No, it has to be the same. It no, to, it's about oh, the ritual and familiarity. That's the yeah, best but it part. Can have a, it could have a familiar like structure and then it could have like a little tiny surprising element. That's can, it. Can we have a verbal... A can we have a verbal like intro that is the same? That's o- a good over, idea. Over maybe the jingle or uh, yeah. on the other side of the jingle. There has to be something that. that reminds people that they're here and they're safe and they're they're yeah. back. They're yeah. back in the podcast. I, this has been I've been really appreciating all the, the the feedback and it's like even though our audience is tiny, um, the 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 percentage of people who actually uh, say something to us as uh, compared to the percentage who actually is listening. Uh, to the numbers actually listening is enormous. So like we have like 30 of you out there who are listening dedicatedly and like five or 10 are saying things to us. So I really, really appreciate that. And one of the nicest things we heard is somebody who said that we are her favorite accompaniment to a glass of wine each evening during this like sad pandemic quarantine times in New York. So um, just know that these little comments mean a lot to us and this type of encouragement is is uh wonderful i i learned a, a lesson from my friend scott bybin who had something called the lost film festival and he had a backpack and a projector and a little hard drive full of movies and he would just travel the world for years i think he did about on average 200 to 250 screenings a year 
and he would find these obscure little movies and they're often political in nature or kind of, you know, where art meets rebellion and politics and kind of resistance films. And he was this, he was this resistance festival, film festival, traveling film festival man. And, um, and I, I, so I, I attended a bunch of these screenings. He had like screened on the side of like the, was the skull and bones at Yale where that Bush had been a member of his fraternity or, um, and, and in the barrios in Venezuela and like all these amazing places. And, and then in Venice beach, we had this, the LAFCO LA filmmakers co-op, uh, our little kind of community filmmaking collective. And so he showed up there once and he had his little projector and there was probably like a couple of, he did a couple of screenings. Once there was 50 people in the audience and once there were three and it was exactly the same, his enthusiasm and his realization that it was just as important to touch and affect these three people as it was to affect 50 people. And even I, I got the sense, even if there was one person in the audience, he would have had the same yeah. exact attitude. And uh, the greatest musical experience I ever had, live music experience, was I went to see Prince play at the Roosevelt in downtown LA, uh, no, in, in Hollywood. And then there were rumors after this incredible show, which was already quite small. There was maybe a couple thousand people in the audience. But they said that if you hang around, he really likes to jam after his concerts. And they had set up a little thing for him to jam in the lobby of the hotel. And that if we were patient enough, probably he would play. And uh, sure enough, like three hours after the show had ended, maybe it was 3 or 4 a.m., he comes out with his band and he picks up. It was not even a stage. It was just on the ground. There was a guitar and a couple mics and some amplifiers and... And he picked up the guitar and I was standing literally like two feet away from him. If I lifted my arm, I would have touched him. And he just started playing. And just now I even just get chills from thinking about this. And now that he's gone, I mean, it's just one of the, I think one of the great geniuses of our age. Um, and then he just played for like two hours, sometimes playing backup for his backup singers to sing. And, and, and it was maybe 10 of us in the audience. It wasn't even an audience. We we're just hanging out. And I realized he would be doing this even if there was zero people there. Yeah. He just loved playing music and playing the concert just amped him up to do more playing of music. And and it was just one of the most beautiful, inspiring things I've ever seen in my life. Anyway, not to compare us to any of this. I'm just saying I really appreciate this little audience that we have. Yeah, no, And I, I feel like we are developing a little bit of a rapport with people and people are kind of like sending us their ideas for what we should talk about. And, and I really like the idea that it's not just us dialoguing with each other, but that we're having this, uh, this more meaningful building connection with people who are listening. I've told this story a few times, um, <clears throat> but now that it's in public and can be fact-checked, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a preamble, which is I think Mark Twain wrote this story. Or I've told it enough times that this is actually just my story. I haven't written. I have no idea if this is a true story out there in the world, but I think it's a Mark Twain story. Um, and it's about in the after. So it's about your, your rank sorted in heaven based on your skill and quality as a writer. And the entire story is Shakespeare running around because Shakespeare's number two trying to figure out who number one is, you know, like just trying to find number one, like who the hell is this person? And it turns out to be someone who had never once published a book, but had written some things that they read for their friends. Mm -hmm. That's it, right? That's number one. And I've always loved that idea that like you can dissociate followers, popularity from the quality of the work, from the thing, you know, like you didn't, the person didn't need accolades, didn't need fame, didn't need success. 
And like that was even more maddening to Shakespeare at the end, right? They're like, you know, th there's nothing worse than being both humbled and outranked at the same time. In, in the flamenco world, I think I've talked about this a little bit, but there's really a distaste for, you know, a large audience because it just kills the, and, and if, in fact, the idea of people being paid for it, it just kills the, the actual sanctity and the, the, the communion that's happening when you have it swell up naturally with no a small or no audience and the best flamenco i ever heard would be like you know i went to spain in the late 90s looking for this this culture and this way of life because i really am interested in the in the blending of life and art making and the, you know the blurring of that 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 line i love how carefully you put that cup down thank you um he, i have a grand piano here for those of you who don't see and and he's got his britney cup and every time that he puts it down i think both first uh, care of the piano and not to make a loud clunking sound. Yeah, it's also the sound. <laughs> it's also this is a very sensitive mic. Putting it down in the most gingerly way, and I'm appreciating <laughs> it. But um, so you have to, if, if you wanted to hear real flamenco, uh, you had to be very patient, and you had to hang out with people and that that were great, and you could never ask them to play, and you just had to like kind of spend enough time in the hopes. That, that it would happen. And this would often be after four, five, six hours of just drinking and hanging out in a bar. And then they would, they would put in, in Spain, they have those like metal storefront things that come down, clunking down. And that's when the hope would, would swell up when that clunking sound would happen and the bar was officially closed and no one else would be allowed in. And there would just be six or seven of these masters. My favorite was a guy named Paco Valdepeñas, who you could hear if you just, I'm sure in Spotify, there's a few recordings of him. He had this raspy, guttural voice, and he had three teeth on the upper left and two teeth on the lower right. And then he would disappear into the bathroom, maybe do a little bump of cocaine. 78 years old. He'd say, like, these kids, they don't understand, like, what this is for. Like, you don't take an aspirin if you don't have a headache. But there is that moment at like 5 a.m. that you just feel a little sleepy and you just need a little a little pick-me-up to keep going, you know? <laughs> so he'd come out kind of energized. I see why he has no teeth. Yeah. <laughs> trying to come down at 6 a.m. And I wasn't taking any, so I was get tired at this point and then appreciate a little bit of the music and then go to bed. And then I would show up again at like 2 or 3 in the afternoon still and let the still bar and still be there. But um, anyway, these are the most precious moments of my life, on par actually with the Prince moment, I would say. These, these like uh, flamenco. And there's also a hierarchy there. There's a, there's a fear of being recorded. It's the most, you know, kind of disrespectful on one level thing you can do because you would then be promising the experience to somebody who wasn't there and who, who the person who was creating the, the music hadn't approved of that moment. But... The one thing that trumped this this taste for being filmed was an honor and respect of age. And since my friend Paco was an elder statesman and I had my little mini DV camera, he would want to film it. He actually had a kind of natural inclination to want to document these moments. He realized, I think, how deeply precious and valuable they were. Mm -hmm. So he would say, do you have your... What, he had funny names for it, like like the juice or something like to be able to like record this and he'd say do you have your little machine and i'd say yes and he'd say okay record and then people would look at me suspiciously and he'd be like he's with me he can film and i got to like 
capture these moments that, and a lot of these guys weren't even professionals, but they were the most respected in the world of flamenco. So they might have like a job as a, you know, jeweler or, or butcher or something like that. And there was a sense that like only, I remember reading once that only the most desperate person would resort to having to sell their art because really what's, you know, that's like a form of prostitution. You would, you know, it's, sex is great until you're selling it, right? So, um, and the dog has walked indoors. There's a dog has walked in. <laughs> anyway. Have you ever had with these, these, the moments you're talking about, the best moments in life, right? Have you ever had one with no other people? With, where, where you're neither audience nor performer? Just zero, just alone, just you. Interesting question. I wonder. Have you? Um, so so I, I basically spent the first 17 years of my life on this island off the coast of San Diego called Coronado. And um, there's a... There's so there's a very very yes. Would you like to describe it? <laughs> there's two. They both happened while I was staring at the ocean. The first was um, there's a bench. There's just a single bench that l overlooked the beach, <clears throat> and um, I wrote down that uh, like I wrote down kind of before I left when I was 17, I was like, I want to come back here when I'm 27, exactly 10 years later. And I want to just like know what's different. I want to be able to like sit in the exact same spot looking at the exact same, like I want the visual input. I want everything to be as, as controlled as I can, right? Like the same time of year, the same light, the same smells, the same bench, exact same spot. And I just want to know what's different. I, I wanted to do like an experimental control condition, right? And so I do this and I go back 10 years later and I'm kind of like, I've like built up the narrative of like what this could be and um, and what like maybe I'm going to think deeply. Maybe I'm going to have an epiphany. Maybe I'm some some wisdom or realization is going to descend on me from above. Uh, and I go and I was so disappointed in myself because my brain had no thoughts in it. Like I went, I found the bench, I sat, it was ten exactly 10 years later. I was going to reflect on my decade. It was like my, you know, I was... I was renewing my vows to myself and I thought absolutely nothing. And it took me years to realize that that is like contentment or like what that was, was I'm so used to always having a monologue in my head and it's usually ang anxious or like telling me to do something or optimize or be better or, you know, take left instead of right. Or like my mind was actually clear. And you were able to appreciate that only in retrospect. Only uh -huh. in retrospect. Yeah, Interesting. absolutely. Um, <laughs> only with a racing mind thinking about that moment. Yeah, yeah, it had to proto. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It had to figure out what happened, and and, and I wonder if the next time that. you'll be able to just recognize it and appreciate it. But then your mind will be full with how that's happening, and then yeah. it won't be happening. Uh, and the second, um, I so I had this I had this bird which I never named because I have a superstition that if I name things they die, uh, but it, it 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 did live quite a long time, and um, I had gone off to college. It died when I was away, and I come back and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna bury it. And uh, I decide to have like a Viking funeral for it. So I make a little raft out of twigs and I put it on top and I fill it with lighter fluid and I light it. And um, I go out on this very austere kind of, uh, uh, again, beach with like these very, very dark cliffs and it's stormy and it's like a, uh, San Diego does not get many storms, but this one is epic. This is like a Kansas style storm. And I try to toss it out into the ocean. 
right? I'm like, okay, Viking funeral. I've, I know, I guess I knew in principle what a Viking funeral is, right? You like shoot a flaming arrow into a barge out in the lake and watch it burn from a distance. And so I had this vision in mind and it just, I like, it was, it was midnight and it was dark and the water was cold and it was raining and I was alone on this beach for miles. It was just me and my dead bird. And I'm trying to uphold the value and ritual of the Viking funeral that I thought I understood. But like, I just ended up with this like kerosene mess because I would toss it into the waves. But of course the waves are coming at me and the raft with my bird on it would just float back to my feet. And like, it was hard to light because it was raining and ocean was kept putting it out. And it just was so, I was just so bad at performing this act of ritual. And I ended up kind of having to like wade out into the water and kind of like chuck the raft, like a small Frisbee as far as I could and just like turn my back and walk away. And it was so disappointing. My, like, I, I guess, I guess this, the, the, the theme here is that my, the, the lessons I most learn in life are like the, my own personal disappointment, violation of expectation, right? Like I thought I could perform this ritual and I just couldn't. And I look back on it now and it is one of the most beautiful, like, intimate experiences with myself and this and my bird who I loved. I fucking love that bird. I was pair bonded to that bird. Like n I've never been pair bonded before or after. And, um, including all the humans you've been pair bonded to. Yeah. 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 Pale in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, and it's just, it's alone and I, you know, I was alone and no one was there and I didn't, you know, I, I don't tell the story. I didn't, I didn't remember it as if I was thinking to myself, I'm going to tell the story later, which I think counts as having an audience. Uh, and it was just, I don't know, some of the most beautiful moments in my life. So the, I, I realize alone. now that, that looking what, what's missing out of these pessimistic, uh, you know, renditions of life, whether it's Schopenhauer or, you know, Woody Allen in his funny way saying like, you know, life is, uh, you know, like like the two ladies who are eating and they say this is the food is here is so awful and the other one says i know in such small portions and he says that's how life is just like uh full of misery and pain and then all even over with too quickly and yeah. um i feel like what's missing is this ability this extraordinary ability we have of of incorporating all these negative experiences and actually seeing them and not just that's not just interpretive. I think it really is the case that they are cathartic, and they are opportunities for true, you know, growth. And I remember my mother describing early on how difficult it was to give birth to me. Like she nearly died. It was like eighteen hours of labor. She left her body and saw herself from the corner of the room. And she was in Thailand, and it was just like, and she, you know, obviously she said she was glad to have had me, but she, her feeling was that never for anything in the world would she ever do that again right like there's just no chance that she would voluntarily put herself through that experience again and then a couple few years passed and they said let's have another baby right and that as, as often happens right yeah. and so we're able to kind of see these experiences as not only you know uh, uh, uh tolerable but even worthwhile enough to go through again and when you think of when i think of the most difficult experiences of my life in retrospect and i don't think this is just like a false you know rose-colored uh, optimism i think it's 
deeply true that those experiences I'm grateful for having had them. And um, so I think, you know, if I, and then, and then just talking about the way that human beings happen to interpret these experiences, be it through writing a song like you want it darker or telling a story like you just did of your bird's funeral or actually having the bird's funeral and, and, and having the experience. And, and when I think of the ritual of, of human funerals and, uh, of the, does it make the, the life and the death, does it make the death tolerable? Yes. I think it actually works. I think that, that we've come up with as humans, this way of, of, of narrativizing these, these experiences and the fact that the life does have a beginning, middle and end is, is profoundly meaningful and beautiful. And, and, uh, and when I think of the, the suffering I went through when my father was dying and the tears I shed and like the, the worry and everything, it actually is more than compensated for by the, the beauty of everybody cutting together to say goodbye and now having this story of a life. Right. And yeah. um, of course it's difficult to think that while it's, while you're going through the difficulty, but I think there's a, there's a, I've been very moved recently by listening to people talking about leaning into pain. Don't try and escape it. L realize it makes you feel most alive. And I guess that's what also Schopenhauer was saying that, that, that the, the, there's the, the, in, in consciousness studies, they say pain is a really unique case because it's like the, 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 it collapses the difference between appearance and reality. In the, it's the only place, right? You can be, you can have the illusion of seeing something. You can even have the illusion of happiness, but there's no such thing as the illusion of pain. There is pain. Or pain, pain. Yeah. And so it's, it's this really unique and interesting place where reality, subjectivity and objectivity are one. So maybe it's true that there, it is a fundamental, you know, attribute of being human is pain. And yet I would still submit that life is worth living and we don't need to give back the ticket. And I think it's important to remember that those, those experiences and memories, they're gone. And that when you remember something, you're remembering it now. Every time you remember something in the brain, it's you're, you're, you're conjuring it at the pre in the right. present moment. And so like the, the experience that we're drawing wisdom from or, or ret when I'm retroactively looking back on my sitting on a bench and having no thoughts, probably that's the only time in my life I can remember my mind being cl actually clean, clear. Um, clean. <laughs> I've never had my mind clean. <laughs> yeah. That was not a f uh, mistake. Um, and, but that like when you remember something, you're, you're, you're evoking it in the present still. Yeah. And thing the you know, the difference between the actual experience of the thing and your memory of it is everything that's happened in between. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't think I don't think that's sad that these moments are lost. I think it's beautiful that we can hold on to them with our memories, even degraded or enhanced as they are. And that like it's still it's it's always the case that it's just you right now. You can remember the past, you can remember the trauma, you can remember the good, you can remember the bad, but it's always just you right now doing that. And I think there's something very freeing to that. That that like allows me both to uh, revisit and understand the past in a way that, you know, I can I can like come to terms with. I think that's a good place to stop. Now we're gonna talk about the future, which is tomorrow when we will see everybody again. Okay. Thanks everyone.